0: From O'Melveny & Myers, this is The Cramdown, with Nancy Mitchell and John Rapisardi.
1: Welcome to another edition of The Cramdown. Unfortunately, John can't be with us today, but we're going to have a really exciting discussion anyway about the financial distress in higher education. And this is a particularly interesting topic for me because I just sent my 26-year-old to graduate school this year, and it has been an interesting challenge in a lot of ways with regard to the COVID situation, but higher education was a problem before the COVID pandemic started. Tuition had increased 285% since the 1970s. Enrollments were projected to be reduced by 15% by 2029, and 69% of students were emerging with over $35,000 in student debt. And then COVID came along. And the colleges and universities have had to deal with remote learning, financial pressures from revenue reductions and cost increases, keeping their students and faculty safe, probably number one on their priority list, decreased athletic department revenues. Anybody been following the Big Ten these days? Layoffs and furloughs and donors with fewer financial resources of their own. So it's just been a confluence of circumstances that have led us to this topic today. Um, I'm really excited to welcome to The Cram Down my partners, Denise Radis, who's in our project development group, and Maria De DeConza, who's in our restructuring group. And I guess I'd like to start and just throw it open for the two of you. The COVID impacts at colleges and universities that I was summarizing are all over the news. And I think the immediate impacts are probably pretty evident to everybody. But when that shakes out a little bit, what do you guys think happens in this industry?
0: So, you know, Nancy, I think that education experts are really viewing this crisis as an opportunity for institutions to really become a little bit more nimble, to become more comfortable with online delivery of instruction and enabling them to reach more students. So, it can truly be an opportunity for those schools. On the other hand, there is a loss of the community building and the civic discourse that normally happens in education. And so that is being lost somewhat right now during the COVID um, crisis. But it seems like from the economic perspective, there will be an increase in mergers and acquisitions in the college space, some permanent closures, consolidation, and really a sense that the the haves will have more and the have-nots will get less?
2: Maria, it's Denise, I, I agree with you. I think that between the haves and the have-nots, if you'd call them that, what we're going to find as some of the lower tier uh, schools struggle more financially is an increased focus on brand recognition. At least that's kind of what I intuit happening. And then uh, the other thing I wanted to mention Nancy, is I predict that folks are going to stay closer to home. They're going to consider in-state schools quite seriously. That'll allow them to be more nimble regarding their ability to switch back and forth between in-person and online education. And so we might see a trend toward residing near campus, um, even if you're doing online learning. We might see a trend toward staying extremely close to home so that you can live from home and still attend in-person. So uh, I I don't know that we're seeing, we have the data on that yet, Nancy, but I predict that that's going to be one of the outcomes.
1: Well, never letting data stand in my way. I, I do know that in Charlie's case, my son's case, he's had some conversations with his classmates that have been really interesting in that regard. Some of them really happy to be in the college town and feel like it's a better opportunity for them than staying at home. And that even if they can't go to class every day, they're still able to meet their professors and kind of engage in the university community. But others of them have made the point that by the time they have to invest in a whole new suite of technology and find work in a new town to try to support their education, those towns themselves having some financial issues from the pandemic, that it's actually become sort of impossible for them to really access an education, at least if they go to the college town, and that they're better off sort of staying at home and living with their parents. And all anecdotal, you know, I hear you, Denise, on the fact that we don't have the numbers, but but I think it will be interesting to see how and what becomes a trend as we move forward. So you've got these students with a lot of issues. I'm curious, what do universities
0: do to help those students address those challenges? There have been a number of things that institutions have been, been implementing to address the pandemic in the last few months. It's ever-evolving, and um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens over the course of the the next school year. Um, one really great example is Cal State Fresno distributed 3,000 iPads and set up hotspots in rural areas to allow their students to get access to the programs at the college. Um, There have been a number of situations where institutions are changing admissions requirements because of the difficulty of testing on the large scale basis. The SATs and ACTs have been canceled in many jurisdictions. And so there really just isn't that same method of evaluating students. And so schools are looking at the admissions requirements and looking to see how they can tweak that to
2: address the situation. Schools are also going to look at controlling costs for their students, trying to make things as economical as possible in an otherwise challenging environment. Certain schools have looked at freezing tuition or even taken actions already to do so for the coming academic years, give their students some certainty as to what the costs will be. Um, and, And then we shouldn't overlook the safety components. I think a lot of what, universities uh, are doing right now, is focused on keeping their students safe. So they're investing tons of money in safety measures, PPE, um, spacing out of housing, delivery of food, constant testing of students, and in some cases, tracing of students, ways to not only ease student um, concern about safety, and anecdotally nancy admittedly in the news you could you could question whether there really is that much concern among the student community about safety but nevertheless for the for the higher education institutions i do think one of their primary focuses right now is not just keeping the students enrolled but fundamentally keeping them safe and that's proving to be a big challenge as you see with universities opening up choosing to allow their their students on campus and then having flare-ups, um, and then having to go into quarantine and move to online classes, even though their students are on site and are in student housing. They're nevertheless online quarantining for two weeks, three weeks at a time. So the colleges are are faced with a swarm of challenges on costs and hits to revenue and the like. But really fundamentally, I think student safety is is the current focus.
1: Yeah, you know, I saw that You know, I'm I'm an Indiana girl by background, but I saw that uh, Indiana University has had to spend money now to open three more rapid testing centers. Um, And Purdue, which had frozen tuition, I think for the last eight years or so, froze it again this year. They've been really pushing on the tuition front. It's obviously having both a revenue and a cost impact. I guess one of the questions I would ask is, can you guys give a little insight into the revenue impact and how how it's being seen across the university, because it's obviously not just a question of, of cost and it's not just a question of a few people deciding not to go. This is sort of a massive revenue shift. And, and where are the, the components of that? What are we really seeing in terms of reduced revenues?
2: Well, for those that work in the financial uh, side of things with higher education, like I do, um, and helping them and advising them on raising debt and paying for their costs, Um, The revenue impacts of this pandemic um, really are the perfect storm. It's frankly not alarmist to call it a disaster for the higher education sector. Uh, The revenue challenges come in a number of areas, Nancy. Uh, We have to worry about endowments, investment performance. Um, Certainly at the beginning of the pandemic, it looked like that was going to be an extremely problematic area for higher education. The stock market and investments have been doing better recently. So there's a question mark now about whether that's really going to be one of their bigger challenges. But for those institutions that have healthcare providers as part of their institution, as many large universities do, um, you have to worry there about the uh, pandemic's impact on the healthcare industry and on healthcare revenues, which are a large component of those, those universities that do have a healthcare system. And then there's athletics. As you said, the Big Ten looks now like it's going to play, but many, many leagues and many sports are not experiencing that same outcome. And so we're going to have stadiums that are empty and revenues that are lost in any number of areas due to the changes that are going on in athletics.
1: Maria, I know we work a lot with troubled municipalities, and I'm curious, how do we think states funding for state universities is gonna be impacted by this?
0: Yeah, I think that's a real issue that the states are going to be grappling with. They're looking at severely curtailed budgets and where they're going to spend their money. And so schools that are reliant on state funding are going to really be struggling with the revenues coming from those sources. And Denise mentioned athletic programs. That's not the only auxiliary revenue source that a number of these institutions have. They have um, weddings and large gatherings on site um, and other auxiliary programs associated with their colleges that were severe revenue sources going into the pandemic that have been completely shut down like other areas of the financial world. One example of that is there is a small liberal arts college in Boston, Pine Manor, that was really uh, reliant. Over 50 percent of their revenue was on these outside sources and only a small portion on their in- endowment. I had no idea. Whereas Boston College had the exact opposite, where they are really supported from st- you know, 60% from their tuition and only 10% from their endowment. And Boston looked at this small liberal arts college and said, you know what, we we could um, acquire this college. Um, Pine Manor was in a situation where they just couldn't fund their college, that there was nothing they could do to make up for the loss of the auxiliary revenues. And so Boston College has announced a merger where they're going to take over that institution. So that's one area where these institutions are struggling and they're looking for a way out.
2: And there are a couple other important auxiliary areas. Let's not forget about some we've already touched on. Housing, the uh, density of housing is, is drastically reduced, yeah. thereby reducing housing uh, revenues. And at some colleges, many colleges, there's no housing being offered at all. Parking, think about what it was like when you were a student to try to park on campus, oh, yeah. right? That's revenue. Yeah. Those, those lots are now empty. And then for the larger universities with the bigger names, um, or at least any university with a loyal alumni following, merchandising. Now, that hasn't stopped completely. You can still shop online in some states, depending on local laws. You can still shop on campus. But if you're not visiting your child on campus and you're not attending the football game on campus, etc you're going to be much less likely to step into that student store and buy that extremely expensive sweatshirt and bring that revenue into the university so they're under attack from really every aspect of of their operations it's
1: interesting it's a little bit like tourism in a way because college towns are also destinations for people like small cities in a way and so I suppose it has the same sort of difficulties as anybody else in this environment. There just aren't as many people coming to your university, and so that affects everybody. What about the cost? Can can I just,
0: I hate to use this, and I know better, I'm a bankruptcy lawyer, but can we just make it up on the cost side? It's really difficult for these institutions to do that. A number of them were already struggling prior to COVID and hadn't fully recovered from the 2008 financial crisis. So they were already tightening their budgets, looking for ways to cut costs. And so to add additional um, cost cutting here is very difficult. Plus, there are the additional expenses, the health care PPE expenses. That just adds additional costs. Um, there is, you know, there are some temporary furloughs, pay cuts, um, I don't really want to say it, but curtailing investment um, contributions into pension funds. And so schools are having to take those types of drastic measures in order to address the cost side. But again, the costs, the increases are actually even more
2: difficult than Finding ways to cut. In fact, we're learning through the public disclosures of some of these universities that those increased costs, Maria, are in the billions of dollars, wow. not the hundreds of millions, not the tens of millions, but the billions of dollars. Um, and we're just in the first couple quarters, ac- uh, academic and fiscal quarters of the year. So some of that might be able to be adjusted and they might be able to lower some of those ongoing increased costs but it's absolutely the case that the universities are reporting that they have astronomical increased costs due to what's going on with the pandemic. So that, Maria, it makes it nearly impossible. Isn't that just going to take us
1: back then to the trend that we kind of hit on a couple of times, which is consolidation? I mean, if, if they're really going to have those kinds of costs, there are just going to be a number of institutions that can't make it. Am I missing something?
0: No, that's right. And some school systems are looking to integrate their operations, consolidate under the same management structure to try to save costs that way. But really, it seems to be a situation where the more financially distressed schools, the more fragile schools are either going to have to shut their doors or look for a partner for a merger or acquisition.
1: Interesting. So difficult operating environment. And Denise, I know you, you help a lot of these institutions address their debt side. How do I think about my debt? What kind of financing do they have and how do they think about dealing with that debt and their, their payments in this
2: environment? There are two challenges for institutions in this environment. The first is to pay debt service on and control their current debt. The second is how to pay for the ongoing capital needs and expenses that they've got as a university that has to continue to maintain itself and in some instances likely to grow and both of those are a challenge i'd say the former is the biggest challenge universities have a very large amount of debt typically it's tax-exempt bond finance debt out in the tax-exempt markets Um, it's widely held Therefore, it's difficult to get in front of your investors and negotiate changes with them. That means you have limited flexibility to change your structures or renegotiate or work out your debt directly with investors, Nancy. Um, You also have revenue pledges in that debt. That means that some of your very first dollars in have to go to payment of debt service. And what that means is that you, are, you may be left with the choice of paying your debt and uh, complying with those covenants at the uh, expense of your educational mission. And certainly that's a place no university leader wants to find themselves. So it's a real challenge. That's tough because if
1: I don't have flexibility in my documents and my revenues are down and my costs are up, I feel like there isn't a lot of room for me there. Can I go to the market? I mean, interestingly, we all know this in this pandemic, despite the fact that there have been a number of challenges, the markets are still open for some
2: people. Are are they open for educational institutions? Absolutely. And surprisingly, they are quite open and quite available. But this goes back to the haves and have not scenario that we talked about earlier. Um, the access to the public markets has traditionally been based in part on the creditworthiness of the institution, and that makes sense. Investors typically like to invest in creditworthy, strong, financially sound institutions. So when you talk about the Harvards of the world with very large endowments, with the ability to weather the storm, as you say, um, then they are, they are finding themselves having completely adequate access to the markets. Um, the University of California, for example, went into the market in the late summer with a multi-billion dollar financing. Not uh, again. That's an extremely large amount in a regular environment, much less in the pandemic. But Nancy, the folks that are going to struggle are the folks at the lo- at, at the other end of the spectrum, the institutions that are already being hit on the revenue side and are being hit on on the cost side, but can't right size the ship. At least in a somewhat short term, um, are going to have a pretty hard time in the market because the market has proven itself to be more skittish during the pandemic with those kinds of institutions. Some of them may still be able to get it done, but it's going to be more of a challenge certainly than it was prior to the pandemic.
1: Maria, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit on the on the debt side for a second. I've got these tough structures that Denise has been talking about. I'm not. Harvard or Yale or one of the the real haves in the marketplace, so I can't go, or the University of California system, I can't go raise billions of dollars. Can I go talk to my bondholders? And are are they going to be open to having conversations with me?
0: Absolutely, Nancy. We would always recommend that institutions go talk to their bondholders as they move forward in this process. Existing bondholders may be more willing to provide additional investment, be more willing to help out while the institution goes through any operational changes. The problem is that unlike a corporate situation where the corporation has the tool of a bankruptcy process to threaten their bondholders with or threaten their creditors with or negotiate with their creditors. Um, and a higher education institution does not have the ability to file a chapter 11 case and reorganize its debts in that manner. Okay, you got to talk to me about that. So I can't, I can't file for bankruptcy? Why not? So, if you're an institute of higher education and you rely at all on funding from Title IV of the Higher Education Act, which is federal funding of student financial aid programs, you can't file bankruptcy. The Higher Education Act provides that an institution that is in bankruptcy or has filed bankruptcy or an affiliate who's in control of the institution that files bankruptcy, is permanently ineligible to receive Title IV funding. That means you cannot get federal student aid for your students. And so an institution that goes into a Chapter 11 process or a Chapter 9 process, a bankruptcy process, will be unable to move forward as a going concern and seek restructuring or sale options in a bankruptcy during that period.
1: Is that going to be true of any other kind of proceeding, like say a receivership or a assignment for the benefit of creditors? Or do I, do I have any options?
0: So those proceedings are not automatic. There's not um, ineligibility automatic on the filing of those types of proceedings. So they may be an option. But the Higher Education Act provisions also require fiscal sustainability. And so an institution that has the the problems that might lead it to a Chapter 11 or a receivership or an assignment for benefit of creditors is going to be struggling through the um, Department of Education regulations and guidelines for fiscal responsibility in any event. So whereas it's not an automatic bar, it is still a possibility that while an institution is in one of those proceedings that it would lose its Title IV funding as well.
1: Boy, I, I actually am amazed by that. So no bankruptcy, limited opportunity to use other state law proceedings, Limited opportunity to restructure my bonds. Denise, what do I do? Can I I use my endowment?
2: There are restrictions on how you can use an endowment. But yes, Nancy, that's one of the places that folks should look if they are lucky enough to have a sizable endowment in particular at their disposal. The limitations have to do with the fact that when donating to a nonprofit institution like a university, folks are able to designate. Or restrict what the monies that they donate can be used for. They can be quite particular, and the restrictions can be quite onerous. And so it's not the case that every dollar sitting in a particular university's endowment is available at the discretion of the leadership of that university for use in the short term here to right the ship and to address the revenue challenges facing the university. It may be that those particular dollars can only be used, for example, uh, for a football program or for a particular kind of science laboratory, things that aren't really going to help in this situation. So one thing that that the universities should consider and um, would need to do to free up some of those funds, particularly those that don't have enormous endowments, is talk to their donors, future donors for certain, but also existing prior donors and talk to them about freeing up the restrictions that have been previously placed on those funds in light of this unprecedented situation that the universities find themselves in. It's likely the case that a significant number of those donors would be willing to consider that approach. Now, you're, you're faced with constraints, um, trustees may not feel that they have the, the discretion to make that kind of change. Some of your donors may be deceased, uh, you know. So there, there, are, there are practical constraints on that approach. But that is one thing you can do to ease up the the limitations p- folks normally think of on their endowments. But there are also Nancy restrictions on how much of your endowment you can spend each year um, as a nonprofit. So while it is a component to consider, it's it's not um, going to be the answer for all of your fiscal woes in this situation.
0: And Denise, aren't a number of these endowments set up to be perpetual? And if you invade them more than normal in this situation, you're actually cannibalizing it for the future.
2: Absolutely. There are long-term practical implications of what I just discussed. You wouldn't want to do that, and a university typically would not do that. Um, and often, Maria can't even do that under their own guidelines um, set up by their trustees but also under nonprofit law, which places limitations on your ability to draw down from those same endowments. But you know the, on the margins, if you haven't been drawing um, as much out of your endowment as you can, this is certainly a situation where you would want to do so. And you might want to go back to the drawing board and take a bit more, even though you can't risk the, the long-term viability of the institution by doing that. So what
1: about stimulus money? Is Congress being helpful here? They are,
2: Nancy. Under the CARES Act, which is the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, of the $2.2 trillion in funds that Congress earmarked for emergency relief throughout the country, approximately $14 billion was earmarked for higher education. And so those funds are available and have been available. I think that um, most of the components of of those funds, there's different categories you can apply for the aid in. Um, Most of them I think are open until the end of uh, September 2020 or were open until the end of September of 2020 for applications. And they involve interestingly, aid not just for the universities themselves, but for the students. Individual aid. However, on the individual aid front, it has to come through the university. The university has to assist students as a group, one would imagine, in applying for aid and obtaining aid. Uh, The the individuals can't seek that relief or apply for it themselves.
0: And advocates are really looking for Another stimulus package that might approach higher education differently, either through expanding financial aid programs so that more students can actually have access to higher education or through funding additional um, funds to the states so that the states have the ability to fund more into their higher education systems.
1: You know, I think it's fascinating because I really feel like it's a really hard problem. On the other hand, you guys have identified some things that universities can do in terms of sort of thinking about their debt structure, looking at the market, finding the bondholders to talk to, scrubbing their endowments to see what they can do there. And I think that in some ways I feel good that there are options. I'm going to ask you a little bit of an unfair question. I am the president of a mid-sized university in the Midwest that has a really great reputation but isn't an Ivy League school. How do I think about the things that I ought to do over the next three to six months to put my institution in the best possible position to be successful?
0: They really need to be looking at their operations and their financials holistically, really understanding where the money is coming from and where the money is going. To a certain extent, higher education isn't very different than other institutions, corporations right now that that nobody knows what the future is really going to bring and how long this situation is going to last, how long there's going to be a disruption. So, ensuring that you're paying close attention to the inflows and the outflows and making adjustments where it's at all possible is really important during this time. Forecasting accurately, understanding whether your initiatives are bearing fruit, whether anything is really working, developing a, a strategy, reducing administrative costs, looking at what assets you might have. You know, a number of these institutions really have some valuable assets in real estate, artwork, things like that, that might be able to be monetized during this time um, in a way that can help them be sustainable going forward.
1: I suppose intellectual property, too. I mean, not just physical assets.
2: Absolutely. Denise. I would add to Maria's comprehensive list, I would add innovation. I think uh, the leader that you just described needs to bring every skill of every administrator that he or she has on staff
0: to the table and, and utilize
2: them. They need to think outside the box. This is an unprecedented situation and it likely requires and calls for unprecedented answers. So um, some of what Maria described is indeed right in that category. But innovation, thinking outside the box as to how you can expand your mission, expand your reach to students, expand your reach to donors, um, utilize technology to your advantage in ways perhaps you had not previously. I I, I think innovation is gonna be key to those who come out of this not just intact, but um, perhaps in limited instances, maybe even ahead. That's
1: great advice. I I really appreciate you guys joining the the cram down today. I've really enjoyed the discussion. And I guess I come out of this really grateful that we have some of the best and brightest minds in the country running these institutions that I'm sure will bring their creativity to the table. And that you guys are, are focusing on these issues and available to help. Um, and folks, thanks for listening to this episode of The Cram Down. I think John will be back next time and, and we'll take on another topic in the restructuring space. Have a great day. Thank you, Nancy. Thanks for having us, Nancy.
0: Thank you for listening to Omelvany's The Cram Down Podcast. This podcast is a summary for general information and discussion only and may be considered an advertisement for certain purposes. It is not a full analysis of the matters presented, may not be relied upon as legal advice, and does not create an attorney-client relationship between the firm and the listener. Portions of this communication may contain attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Views expressed by guests are their own. Please direct all inquiries regarding New York's Rules of Professional Conduct to a and Myers LLP, Times Square Tower, 7 Times Square, New York, New York. One zero zero three six. Telephone two one two three two six two thousand.